Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, and I'm joined by Professor Richard Leduc. And against Dr. Dirkmott's will, we are doing part two of the murder of Joseph Smith conspiracy theory. It's really hard to even title it. I don't, I yeah. don't know. How do you describe something? It's kind of like, you know... Uh, you know, how do you describe a rose? Well, how do you describe something that's very much not a rose? So, so who killed Joseph Smith is the name of the video is that uh, that we're talking about, and um, we we talked uh, kind of in a rambling fashion a little bit, and kind of should be completely. Yeah, we did a little bit as we described a little bit of what the video was and some of the different aspects to it. In this particular episode, we want to identify a couple of items specifically. So the next one that we wanted to talk about, and this one might actually, there's a couple of parts to this, but it's essentially Catherine Smith. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so they, they bring her up as a, as the star witness of evidence that Joseph uh, knows that he is in a pit of vipers and that the people that are going to murder him are his friends. Yeah, and in fact, the way this is presented is, I'm not the one who came up with this idea that Joseph's own followers were going to try to kill him. You know, in in 1844, he says, the way it said is in 1844, Catherine Smith said, you know, well, this is where playing fast and loose with the sources is a real problem. You know, and of course, a big deal is made out of it's Joseph's sister who says it. It makes it sound like in 1844, Catherine Smith had a pen out and was writing down what Joseph Smith said at his last sermon. In point of fact, Catherine Smith said this in 1894, 50 years, literally half a century, hundreds of years, or in their regard, two millennia (laughs) after this, literally 50 years after in an interview, she talks about Joseph's last speech and says uh, this. Uh, She says that um, she was there for it. I guess we'll just read it. Um, And they they quote her in in the... uh, Yeah, they quote her in the movie, right? I was in Nauvoo a few days before my brothers were brought to Carthage where they met their death. I shall never forget Saturday, June 23rd, 1844, and I last saw my brothers alive. I heard Brother Joseph's last sermon delivered to a great audience in Nauvoo, the largest crowd I'd ever seen, in the open air for no house would hold the people. I might say that it was more the nature of a prophecy than a sermon. Or rather, the conclusion was, for he finished, he turned and stood facing some of the high priests and elders sitting there. So, so her point is, Joseph turns and looks at the high priests and elders sitting there. Church dignitaries who were seated on the platform behind him and told them that there was seated on the speaker's stand beside him those who are conspiring to deliver him up to the enemy and take his life and be responsible for his death. There are those among you who will betray me soon. In fact, you have plotted to deliver me up to the enemy to be slain. The truth of this prophecy is of history. And she's she's saying this is quoting He was betrayed by his own alleged best friends. So 
the argument has been used was used by the reorganized church for many you know two years oh yeah not only was joseph was brigham young not the the legitimate uh, heir to the church he probably had something to do with joseph smith's murder now this is presented as overwhelming evidence because this is joseph smith's sister but of course the the problem is we actually do have records of Joseph Smith's final sermon that he gives. Now, both of them are relatively late uh, as well. Um, they could be taken from earlier sources. Um, but um, this is uh, it, uh, one of the accounts you have here. This is uh, from this final discourse before he goes. Um the remarks of the prophet Joseph Smith, 1844, written by the same of those on the 22nd, we heard a call to the Legion to muster in the main street near the mansion house. Um, this day, the Lord showed unto me, which was never shown before that I have thousands of friends while others have sought to crawl into my bosom, uh, because of my good feelings towards them. And now are they vipers and seek my life. And if they shall take it, they will pursue you. They will do it anyhow. When you are obliged to fight, to be sure that you do not stain your hands with the blood of women and children. And when your enemies call for quarter, be sure you grant them the same. And then you will have power over the world. He then says, you will be forever called the Nauvoo Legion. And as I've had the honor of being your general leader, I feel to say a few words to your comfort. I wish to ascertain your interests of faith and your future mission of life that you are engaged in, even the same cause of the priesthood sealed upon you, and your calling is to minister life and salvation to all nations upon the earth. Although things appear at present in crisis by the work of our enemies, that they do hold an overruling power over us, but I will liken these things to a wheel. It is sure to be rolling on, and as sure as we the saints sometimes will be on top of this great wheel if they hang on for the fortune in view. Um, he... he uh, goes on uh, to say, um, be not troubled nor give yourselves any uneasiness so as to make any rash moves or to take any hasty steps doing anything wrong whereby you will be cut short in your calling and your preaching of the gospel in this generation. He goes on to say that they're going to move out to the West. Um, and, and then uh, probably more famously, he then drew his sword from his scabbard and raised it above his head saying, I will call upon the mighty gods to bear witness of this. I've drawn my sword and it will never be sheathed again until vengeance is taken on all of our enemies. I call upon the elements in our defense, the winds, the whirlwinds, the thunders, the lightnings, the hailstones, the heavens shall tremble. The earthquake shall be, uh, uh, shall shake the earth shall be shaken with the seas heaving themselves beyond their bounds. These things shall be brought to bear against our enemies for our protection. You notice while he does reference the fact that his, that his, some of his friends have betrayed him, he is not making any reference to anybody on the stand. In fact, it is William Law and the Higby boys whom Joseph was very close with because he loved their dad. Their dad, Judge Higby, was one of his best friends. And it's these two boys uh, that are some of the writers and some of the, the, the leaders of the Nauvoo Expositor and people that are trying to kill him. The reality is many of the people trying to gin up support, the people who are causing him to be arrested and taken to Carthage are in fact William Law, Joseph Jackson, the Higbies. They are former members of the church. They are former friends of William Law. William Law goes you know, from, you know, a couple years earlier, him and his brother writing a hymn, praising God that Joseph was saved from being taken to Missouri to be tried to, uh, pursuing the charges against Joseph Smith, uh, 
that will lead to Joseph Smith's murder. I don't know what Catherine Smith thought she remembered, but we do have a more contemporary account of that speech. We actually have two of them, and in neither of them does it make any reference to that. I could see how that could end up, you know, uh, oh, Joseph said that there were his own friends that betrayed him. Yeah, but it's a little bit different thing to turn around and say, and that man right there, Willard Richards, with the bandolero of guns, is the one who is going to do it. Um, it, it's, it's funny too, that after making a big deal about when some of the sources were written down, um, uh, that he, that, that the maker of this film doesn't tell people now, again, I, there's one of two things that are possible. He either doesn't know that the account he was quoting from Catherine Smith came half a century later. Or far more likely, and and oh, the other context is, of course, she's a member of the reorganized church that's claiming that Brigham Young is a false prophet and that John Taylor was a false prophet and Wilford Woodruff, that the Quorum of the Twelve were all false prophets. So in that very angry time between the reorganized church and our church, there were lots of accusations that were made. And Catherine, in making her accusation, is saying, I'm a member of the true church. I know that Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve are a false church because Joseph said that there were people on the stand that betrayed him. Except I don't know that Joseph said that. He he then apparently turned around and asked those same people to go with him to Carthage. So that seems to be a little... What's more likely? That that, that, uh, Willard Richards in his journal writes, Joseph asked me to go with him to Carthage but really Joseph didn't because he was one of the people that was planning to kill Joseph or that maybe Catherine was embellishing a little bit. And I think that's part of the problem with, with all of this is that we do have sources. We have sources that talk about all of these things, but like many people trying to prove a point from the past, they use a singular source or maybe a second source to the exclusion of all others in order to try to prove the point they want to make. When I was in graduate school, I remember the very, I had a very esteemed professor teaching me my methods class and methods is very similar to Protestant hell. Uh, <laughs> if you were to go there, it would be like that. And I can, you, you had a methods I, class? I, yes. I, I did. I, my methods two final exam was 17 hours long. The whole point of that class is to teach you essentially how to be a historian. And so this is one of the first classes that I took in my PhD uh, uh, coursework. And the the this very, like I said, he was very esteemed. He has multiple big time books published. I probably won't mention him just because I don't want him to ever have to feel like he's associated with that Mormon. Um, but um, he said, here is here are the rules of writing history. They're the most important rules. First, you can't make anything up. If you don't have a source that says it, then you can't say that it happened. So you need to footnote every single thing that you say happened. Second, you can't leave anything out. You don't just pick the source that happens to work with the theory that you have. If there are five different sources and three say one thing and two say something else, then what you write is three of our sources say this happened and two of them say that this happened. 
but you don't leave anything out. And I feel like the makers of this film really did both. They both invented sources that don't exist, such as Joseph stalking out into the hallway with his revolver, uh, but not actually shooting at anyone, having a nice tea time chat with the mobbers that were there, coming back into the room only to find that John Taylor has murdered his brother. Zero sources at all for any of those things. Not one. So you're inventing a source when you say that it happened. Second of all, you are leaving things out by the bushel. There are multiple others. I mean, we don't even, we never even approach the fact that while he portrayed that the church's standard explanation of the murder of Joseph Smith is the, is the one, you know, with, with, uh, uh, the Joseph being shot and killed as he's, as he's going out of the, out of the door. We didn't even talk about the fact that actually what's been much more standard as an argument for how Joseph was murdered for over a hundred years was the William Daniels account that was copied into the church history that said that Joseph was actually executed on the ground by the, the mobbers outside that lost its credence to a great degree by the investigations of the historian Malvern Hill and now President Dallin H. Oaks, um, who, who investigated this as well uh, when he wrote the book Carthage Conspiracy. And Daniels was essentially a kind of discredited witness. So part, I mean, even the, even the idea that this is the lie that the church has been telling for 150, well, sorry, for hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years, years, for million. <laughs> sometime in the Pleistocene epic, the church began teaching about, right? Well, um, even that is actually false because in, in reality, and I would guess some of, uh, 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 of you listeners, um, you might remember your grandparents, you know, saying something to you of the effect, well, didn't someone try to cut off Joseph Smith's head? Didn't they execute him out by the wall? Yeah, that's because that was in our church literature for over a hundred years, or as Justin Griffin believes, thousands of years. The purpose of this podcast is so that people like this can't just make up something and pretend it to be in some pseudo intellectual academic argument and talk to people who don't know even a fraction of what these people are alleging to know and claim things to defame the prophet, or in this case, defame the church, or to or to try to attack and bring people away from the gospel. They don't get to do that without a response. And even if more people listen to this podcast than ever watch this stupid video, the point is is that and and maybe the things that we're saying draw people to go and watch this. Which stupid, I hope they don't, because well, but they inevitably will. But hopefully, when that happens then they're able to see the arguments that you're saying and see this stupid video for what it is. And, uh, and even though th this isn't something that's in some wide distribution, it provides an opportunity for us to talk about lots of different things and the way that antagonists uh, attack the church. And so we're using this as kind of an example to talk about a bunch of different items. Right, and, and you know, someone might uh, wonder, well, Okay, so I get the point that they're trying to argue that, uh, you know, Brigham Young ordered the murder of Joseph and Hiram and Samuel. Which they, they don't make in part one, by the way. Well, they, they're they going make to. in their interview, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. But yeah, don't worry, that's coming. Spoiler alert. And 
Um, well, why is someone making that argument? I don't understand why they'd make it. And uh, I think it's important to understand that there's a whole segment of Latter-day Saints. Now, I'm going to make a lot of generalizations. So if you know someone who fits in the category and you're saying, well, that doesn't fit my friend who thinks I, that's, I'm making a generalization. So it probably doesn't include your friend. Uh, but in general, um, that there has been a modern movement over the past, um, over the past decade or so, uh, that in some ways corresponds with, uh, some of the earlier, um, the earlier attacks on Brigham Young's leadership of the church. I, I think everyone's pretty familiar with the fact that, you know, Sidney Rigdon said he would be the leader of the church. Well, you know, Sidney Rigdon did go found his own church and, and then eventually his followers excommunicated him and they, be, they, be, it's, it was rough for Sydney, but, um, uh, also James Strang, you know, claimed that he was, uh, to be the new follower of the church and claimed that he had a letter that, that said as much, um, he, he's eventually going to be killed by one of his followers and, um, and his movement's going to kind of fall apart. I mean, there are some modern day people who still believe that Strang was the rightful prophet to follow Joseph, but, uh, you will probably haven't noticed any, you know, local Strangite Latter-day Saint churches around you. Um, but of course the most prominent movement among those is the eventual coalescence of, you know, some of these believers who didn't go West into what was the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints fundamental to their claim was that Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve were not the rightful heirs of Joseph Smith, that they were teaching false doctrines, and that in fact, it you know eventually they're going to come to the conclusion that the lineage of Joseph was always supposed to be the one to lead the church. That's not their initial argument, so I think that's it's not fair to place that on them that they oh they thought Joseph missed their. Eventually, you're going to have people who think that inside the movement, but at any rate, all throughout the latter half of the 19th century and the early 20th century, you had multiple people uh, and uh, from ver- these various groups attacking the legitimacy of Brigham Young's prophethood. And of course, the easiest way to attack that is by going to polygamy. So so for, uh, for most of the time period that the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, which is now called the Community of Christ. It's the same church. Um, for most of the time period that they existed, they rejected categorically that Joseph Smith ever taught or practiced plural marriage. Um, different people gave witness to that effect. You know, uh, Emma made statements that made it uh, that that declaim the fact that Joseph ever taught or practiced it. William Smith, Joseph's brother, would would claim that you know Joseph never taught or practiced it. And, and so that was really kind of this demarcator between the two in recent, you know, decades, um, historians of, of the community of Christ, uh, along with, you know, other historians completely outside of the faith, uh, our faith and theirs have, have really, you know, come to terms with the fact that look, it's all of the sources. And there are so many of them indicate that, that in fact, Joseph Smith did teach and practice plural marriage. So, so their church has, has had to come to terms with that. And, and they have, I'm not saying they haven't. I mean, it's obviously difficult for some members more than others, but something 
something that has happened recently in in really the last couple of decades in primarily in the Utah, Idaho, Arizona corridor is a similar movement of members of the church to try to find a way to remove Joseph from the controversies and difficulties that happened after Joseph. These are most um, notably the practice of plural marriage. Um, in some cases, but not all, um, this is also tied to uh, the fact that women don't uh, serve in general priesthood offices in the church. Um, so there are movements where people say, oh, had only Joseph lived, he was going to ordain women to become apostles, and, and he just was killed too quickly. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> most uh, salient in the last you know two decades was that you know, the only reason there was ever a, 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 a priesthood restriction, uh, a race restriction on both priesthood and temple worship was because of Brigham Young. And so if you're a modern Latter-day Saint and you want to have all the aspects of your Latter-day Saint worship that you have, you want to believe in a heavenly mother, you want to, you want to believe in a pre-existent life. These are all doctrines you, you, you literally can't have in Christianity. You're not allowed to walk into a your local Protestant church and say, you know, I was thinking about our heavenly mother and, you know, see how long that gets you, right? Um, and so they want to maintain those beliefs, but they also are incredibly uncomfortable with the more difficult aspects of Latter-day Saint history, among them being plural marriage. So what if I could prove that Joseph Smith never taught or practiced plural marriage. Well, now I don't actually have to deal with that being a, a, a ring, you know, a, 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 a millstone around my neck. Because, yeah, polygamy was bad. Polygamy was awful. I can't believe we ever practiced polygamy. Oh, Joseph Smith never even taught or practiced polygamy. That was invented by Brigham Young. Ah, crazy Uncle Brigham. It's always Brigham doing this, right? Similarly, when it comes to the priesthood restrictions for race that makes people incredibly uncomfortable. And, 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 and I'm not saying it shouldn't. I, I understand that that is a very difficult aspect of Latter-day Saint history. But if I could push that all off into this later Utah church, well, then what have I done? I've maintained the things that I want to believe that Joseph taught. And I've simply created this demarcation. Ah, oh, Joseph was good. Everything else I believe was good. It's just that all the prophets who came after them were false prophets. And, you know, one of the movements we've mentioned before on this uh, podcast that's, you know, that attracts a lot of believers in, in um, again, the Utah, Idaho, Arizona corridor is the Snufferite movement, where this man, Denver Snuffer, is claiming exactly that, that Joseph Smith was a true prophet and that after him, it was just all false prophets and that that's why most of the restoration has been corrupted. But thankfully and luckily God's called him to, to fix it all. Um, it's, you know, always works out that way. It's really good, but um, it's very attractive to especially pietistic. And by that, I mean, you know, people who really feel like it's important that you live good, that you do good, that you have this close, it's especially uh, attractive to, to members who want to feel like they're good people have a really hard time dealing with some of those difficulties of the past 
Well, by making the claim, oh, that isn't really your past. That's when the church was corrupted. That's when the church was bad. It, 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 it attracts people. So it's not a surprise that some of the people who are most enamored with the this, this film that we've been talking about. Now, I didn't know this until I, I literally had no idea. I said, I guarantee you, I go look up what Denver Snuffer has to say on his website. And what do you have? A very glowing review of this movie. Why? Because it does exactly what he's trying to tell his followers. Joseph was good. Everything after him has been bad. Again, this was something very similar to what the community of Christ had argued, what the early uh, Sidney Rigdonite movement had argued. And so you, you might wonder, why do we spend any time on this? Well, the reason why it matters is that we have friends and, and, and I'm sure listeners who uh, have relatives who are being deceived by this argument. Look, anyone can believe whatever they want to believe. I mean, you know, that you don't have to be a Latter-day Saint to be a good person. There are all kinds of good people in this world who aren't Latter-day Saints. And so I, I mean, anyone who doesn't want to accept and believe that Brigham Young was a prophet, I, you know, fine. That that's Everyone has their agency. And Brigham and Joseph both fought for people to have the right to choose to believe whatever they want to believe. But the moment someone crosses the line from, you know, I just don't want to believe this, to making fake, fraudulent, historical arguments claiming that they're historical in order to buttress what they believe, well, now we have a problem. Because when you say, well, there just isn't any evidence that Joseph Smith ever taught or practiced polygamy, what you're saying is something that there's not a single PhD legitimate historian would agree with you. So when you say something like, let me give you the real truth, what you're really saying is, let me give you something that non-Latter-day Saint or Latter-day Saint, none of them agree with, the people who've actually been trained to look at these sources. And so I think that's where it, it becomes this kind of line of demarcation. Look, it, you don't have to believe. You know, and Joseph didn't want anyone to be forced to believe anything. If you struggle with belief and you want to become a Presbyterian and and you feel good about that, well, at least you believe in Jesus. If you decide you don't want to be a Christian anymore and you know you you found your your role in Hinduism, at least you believe that there's a higher power. At least you believe in in trying to do good works for other people. Uh, you know, God uh, Brigham Young, you know, taught that all of those great religious leaders were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I'm not saying that if you're not a Latter-day Saint, you're not a good person. I, if someone's not a Latter-day Saint, that's called almost everyone. But if you are attempting to defame John Taylor by saying that he is not only a murderer, but he is a premeditated murderer of the prophet of the restoration, well, you better come with something more than I'm not sure how big the bullet would have to be. You better actually have something that another historian, or at the very least, an actual trained forensic expert says, oh yeah, that's what happened. Instead, what do you have? You have a bunch of, well, doesn't it stand to reason? No, I, I've looked at this a lot. And there's like, there's like no other way. Well, if it's not obvious, then how come you don't have any historians who agree with you? 
go get a non Latter Day Saint historian. Go get you know a, a, you know a, a, a non Latter Day Saint historian and present the evidence to her, and have her say that that's what it is. Present it to this man and have him say that's what it is. Why don't you have that? I think we all know exactly why you don't have that. I'm pretty sure that the makers of that film didn't say, oh, we have like six Harvard professors who want to be on here saying that this theory's perfect, but we just don't have time for all of them because we have to have that one scene where I'm brooding in the dark thinking about it. So, so we, you know, we've got to cut that. There's no way. Of course, if they had that, they would use that. It's similar to the, the Snufferite claims. There aren't any historians that validate the claims that, that, that Snuffer's movement is making. That's not, that, that's not, he's using history to make claims about his current belief using the idea of history, but not using history that's accepted. And when you challenge them on that, what's the response? Well, that's that, you know, cause the, you know, they're all in league together. It's a giant conspiracy to keep the truth down. It's a giant conspiracy. So you're saying that members of the community of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints and, uh, you know, Hedrickite, uh, Latter-day Saints and also atheist historians are all in league together to make sure that no one thinks Brigham Young is a bad person. Well, I got news for you. That league doesn't exist. Um, in fact, in any, you know, Brigham Young is often, uh, uh, the easy mark for people trying to find criticism of the Latter-day Saint uh, movement. And so it, 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 I think that's part of the reason, just as an explanation of why we, we even spent some time on it. I mean, and so with that in mind, I mean, part of the reason why we, we talked about this film is, is a way of demonstrating how people use half-truths, persuasion, and outright falsehoods and non-academic method to make claims that to the uninitiated, to someone who's just seeing that for the first time, sound like they're really good arguments. But when you dig into them, what do you find? We've got all kinds of problems here. I mean, what are some other examples? Yeah, let me give you an example from from the film. Here's a, a, a kind of a quote that uh, on a particular topic. So he says, there isn't a single part of this reenactment that we did not think completely through. And then just a couple seconds later, for some reason, the jailer let many other people come in and out of the room, right? Like that's a stunning thing. Like what he's essentially assuming is what what the listener is supposed to hear from that is, why was that jailer letting people in there? Yeah, what kind of what kind of deal it's is kind this? Of part, well, have you ever been to a jail where people can just come and go? I mean, it, it, clearly the undertone is, this is part of whatever this weird conspiracy is. Yeah, this this is very odd. What's yeah, happening? What's Why happening are all these people here? coming and going? And now, what's uh, interesting about that is, uh, had he actually done? I mean, look, I know because he said that he spent thousands and thousands of hours, you know, working on this. Apparently, one of those thousands of hours wasn't reading the actual documents that Joseph Smith now, received. Now, I, I that feel day. like when you're saying that he spent thousands and thousands and thousands it's of hours. That's what he said he spent. I know, but I'm saying, I, I feel like you don't believe him that he spent over 3,000 hours doing ballistics and other research. Well, I know he went to Nauvoo a lot. At least twice. Yeah. And that, and then he, you know, he built a set that exactly resembled the room. So maybe it has been thousands and thousands and thousands. Yeah, I, I mean, but uh, one of those thousands of hours, and in fact, one of the minutes of those thousands of hours could have been used to <laughs> look up 
the letter that Joseph Smith received. This is not an obscure letter. This is not, oh my goodness, no one could possibly know that. This has nothing to do with anything that's going on. Joseph receives very few letters while he's actually in Carthage jail. One of them explains exactly why there's visitors that are coming. But so, but so this is actually a really good point because it seems again like like it's uh, like picking I, picking at something that yeah, isn't like that oh big of a you're deal. just being too hard on him. How could he know that? That's exactly That's, my point. So that is exactly the point, right? So if you've spent the time that you have, and maybe legitimately you have, you not understanding how this works makes you miss something I could spend exactly a like this. thousand hours practicing basketball and I'm not going to be signed by the Utah Jazz. The reality of saying that you've spent a lot of time on something does not necessarily mean that the product is going to be good, right? You know, you worked really hard, Grandpa. Yeah, so do washing machines. I mean, yeah, you, 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 the fact that you spent a lot of time, if that time isn't spent in uh, the proper way, it, it doesn't matter. That, which is something that you actually all recognize when it comes to something else that really matters to you. Uh, if you went to a, your heart surgeon and you asked, well, where did you, where'd you get your, where'd you get your medical degree? Where did you like, oh, I don't actually have a medical degree. Well, I'm guessing that some alarm bells would go up before this person's about to cut you open. What do you mean you don't have a degree? You don't understand. Like I've spent thousands of hours watching surgeries. Okay, um, that's great. Did you also do any of them? Did you did you get a degree that said that you can do? Them? No, you don't actually need that. You know what? It's just big pharma is keeping you out of that. They, I they, they so much yeah, operation. Yeah, they, yeah it, the reality is none of us want to be operated on by someone who's not actually a licensed surgeon. So so a person hearing that might say, well, th- that's ridiculous. Obviously, a person that's cutting into me, I'm not going to have them you know do that unless they they actually have that experience but as you described earlier these matters aren't trivial as it relates to people's faith testimony well what i mean i i I don't want to make this sound too life and death but i mean yeah fear not them that can destroy the body but fear them that can destroy both the body and the soul and cast this full down to hell i mean that that's the lord speaking that as important as my physical heart is, my spiritual heart is far, far more important because this body is going to go into dust. But who I am as a spirit in this probation, that that goes on forever. And so I'm not saying this is life and death in the sense that people are actually going to die if they don't believe the right thing. But for someone who has had their faith challenged, rocked, destroyed by someone making a claim by putting themselves up as an an expert for which no one else considers them an expert. Well, um, if in that, in that case, yeah, this is a a very important matter. Um, again, I don't know if this person deliberately, you know, knew that knew that some of these sources existed and deliberately left them out. But we're actually at the point where it doesn't really matter, doesn't matter because right. they're the ones claiming to be an expert. And once you claim to be the expert, you don't get to not know central 
documents related to the claim you're making. You can't say we don't know why people were coming in and out when there's something that We don't says- know why people are coming in and out except for the letter from Minor Deming, who's the general of the militia who has been assigned to protect Joseph Smith. Now, Minor Deming, we talked about on another podcast. We're going to spend some time on Minor Deming at some point. He's not a member of the church. He's an evangelical Christian. He is called up as a member of the Illinois militia by the governor and sent to Carthage to be one of the people to try to protect Joseph and to keep order because they think this could all devolve into some kind of nightmare. Well, um, what happens is apparently... Um, even though the word had been given that Joseph and and Hiram should be able to have people come and go freely in the jail, some of the guards had started preventing people from coming and going in the jail. So the starting point was that anyone could go and that some of the guards had started preventing people from going. And so General Deming, who who had actually left Carthage, he well, he he's going to leave Carthage later that that day. So this is the 26th, this letter is written. He, his brother has just been killed in a, in a horrific accident in, in Southern Illinois. And so he, he's about to leave Carthage. Unfortunately, he's going to leave and go back. So he writes this letter, Mr. Smith. So Mr. Smith, because he's writing to Joseph Van Hyrum. I was requested by the governor to order you such protection as circumstances might require. The guard had been acting upon the disposition that your protection expected all pertaining uh to be so all persons sorry sorry just i missed a line uh that that all persons but those admitted by a pass okay so that they are preventing anyone to get in unless they have a pass given by one of these leaders so they originally didn't have people having a pass apparently the guards started saying oh now unless you have a pass you can't go in and see joseph so even people joseph wants to see you're not allowed to see This is what Deming has to say. I have caused the officers of the guard to be correctly instructed of his duties so that you need not suffer further inconvenience. General uh, Minor Deming, uh, uh, headquarters, Carthage, June 26, 1844. So we don't really know why, you know, visitors were able to just come and go on the 26th. Seems seems pretty odd, doesn't it? Well... (laughs) That's because you didn't know. I mean, I wish he knew because if he had read this letter, Minor Deming could also be part of the conspiracy. I think if you read the letter, he would have, well, we got to pack this up because obviously we're wrong. Yeah, I'm guessing that wouldn't have happened, but I'm guessing that Minor Deming would suddenly also be part of the conspiracy. Of course, of course, Minor Deming was letting people in because, you know, they wanted Brigham Young to be in charge. I mean, whatever. I mean, the point is, uh, we just don't know why people were able to come and go in the jail on the 26th and 27th. Maybe it's because a general of the Illinois militia said, you better let people come and go in the jail. <laughs> so that's something that they could have known. You could have asked literally any historian. And I don't mean an actual historian, not someone who says, yeah, I'm not a historian, but I play one on TV. I mean an actual one. Why didn't you ask one? You know, you actually said in a documentary, you said the words, We don't know why. That implies that you've asked the question and couldn't find an answer. Who did you ask the question of? Not of the, you you certainly didn't read every letter Joseph had in Carthage, which if I was going to write a screenplay about Joseph being murdered in Carthage, maybe 
maybe I might consider reading the letters Joseph has in Carthage. Or not, because that would, you know, take real time. You don't, you don't get to just say it stands to reason. And you don't get to cover up your lack of evidence simply by saying, look, I've read a ton of things. And because I've read a ton of things, that proves I know what I'm talking about. It's wonderful that you've read a ton of things. That's great. And yes, you're far more informed than other people are. Now, with the information you have, are you able to make an argument that non-Latter-day Saint academics, non-film-creating non-academics, except as, as something that should be published in, in an academic place. Let's give another example. All right. So um, the, the claim in the, in the movie is that um, the night before the martyrdom, uh, the mob comes and there's a commotion. And because he, he, one of the points that's made is that, you know, people don't realize the mob actually came twice. That They came the night before. Dan Jones is the only one who provides us this information and he provides it later. It's, it's, it's in an 1847 account, um, that, but they're referencing him. Like they're bringing, Oh yeah. They they bring up, they say Dan Jones said this, that, uh, the mob actually came the night before and that they actually took the chair and pressed it up against the wall and everyone else was pressed up against the wall. And they use that as evidence to say, you know what? They weren't actually in front of the door the way that Willard Richards and John Taylor and everyone else says they were. They were all up against the wall because Dan Jones said the night before that they all got up against the wall, not against the door. So they claim in the movie that Dan Jones, all right, so, and that they talk about how, so when Dan Jones goes to find the mob and talk to Yeah, Joseph sends him out to go figure out what happened because the mob creeps up the stairs. They hear them. Joseph, you know, again, according to Dan Jones says, hey, we're ready for you if you're coming here, something like that. But, and and the mob leaves. And so Joseph in the morning is like, all right, you got to go figure out what's going on with the jailers. How are there a bunch of people who came in here? You know, so sends Dan Jones out to talk to the guards and say, uh, why were there a bunch of guys in here? And that they talk about how they are there to hang Joseph and that they came to Carthage. This is is, uh, relatively quoting, paraphrasing from the, from the movie, uh, to hang Joseph and that they came to Carthage to grab him and hang him. And that probably tells us more accurately what was in the mind of the mob members rather than they are busting through the door shooting while their friends are shooting through the windows. That doesn't make any sense to me. They had come there. They were armed, but they wanted to take Joseph and Hiram out of the room. So the, so the claim is, is that, that their, their intent, now they're armed certainly, but their intent isn't to come in and to shoot the place up. They're coming to hang him. And that Dan Jones said that they said that they're, that they're coming, coming to hang, hang him. So, that, so why, why is he making that argument? He's making that argument for two reasons. One, one of the biggest problems with his so-called theory is that Joseph is meandering about the hallway you know, with his pistol without anyone shooting him. Well, of course they're not shooting him because they never their plan was to hang him. And that no one is shooting through the window, even though everyone in the jail is saying people are shooting through the window because, well, they wouldn't, why, why would you, I mean, you think that these people would take the chance of hitting one of their friends on the inside? I don't know that they're thinking about ballistics that well, but that's, that's the argument. So, so how do I get rid of that? You know what? Dan Jones actually talked to the mob and the mob told him, oh yeah, all we're trying to do is hang him. That's how it's presented. You read basically what he said. So let's go to the source and find out what actually happened as opposed to what the 
film that, remember, every single part of this we got. Right? I mean, that, that, that the that's, whole point is we didn't. There's not one thing in here that was not thought out. Okay, so you just said that the primary, the, 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 what's more accurate reflection of the mob's intention is that they wanted to hang him. Okay, so now you've made the statement. Let's go to the source that you're using to figure out if the source you're using actually says what you're saying it is. Let me read. I'm going to be reading here for a little bit. I apologize to Dan Jones. Um, Early in the morning of the 27th of June, eventful day, a day ever to be remembered, the prophet requested me to descend and interrogate the guards as to the cause of the intrusion upon us in the night, in doing which I was replied by the sergeant, whose name was Worrell. And I think this is the same Frank Worrell. At least Dan Jones is saying that this Frank Worrell. Hold on. So this is this is an alert to my father, uh, Dan LaDuke. It's time for you to listen because we're about to mention your favorite person. Yeah, uh, that that Frank Worrell is at least uh, he's the same person who is going to be killed by Porter Rockwell. He's attempting with that posse to try to kill Jacob Backenstos, the the sheriff, and um, Rockwell shoots and kills him. So I mean. I'm assuming that that I mean there maybe there's other worlds. At least according to Dan Jones is the same person that Well, yeah, yeah, at least yeah. So so in doing so I was replied by the sergeant, so the sergeant of the guard. So he goes down to the guard saying, "Hey, what's going on why are there a bunch of people up in our you know, up in our business last night?" Right. Uh, I was replied by the sergeant whose name was Worrell, I think of the Carthage Grays in a very bitter spirit. Quote, this is Worrell talking. We've had too much trouble to bring old Joe here to ever let him escape out alive. And unless you want to die with him, you better leave before sundown. Or it, and you you are not a danged bit better. Editing. They didn't say dang. Well, it's they got the line through it. That's true. They maybe said dang. They, they did, did not. They or they not. spelled yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Uh, a bit better than him for taking his part. I endeavored. So this is Dan Jones talking now. I endeavored to cool him down and to recall those threats which so ill became those who were entrusted with the lives of men, but he insisted still the more. Quote, this is again the sergeant. You'll see that I can prophesy better than old Joe that neither he nor his brother nor anyone who will remain with them will see the sun set today. So first of all, according to the mob, according to this inquiry that we were told about in this wonderful documentary, uh, the mob's going to kill all of them. So, were I making a movie about this and using this as a well, source, this, this conspiracy just keeps going deeper and deeper. So now the, the mob's mob, in on it. The mob is telling. They're tell yeah they're 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 obviously lying to Dan Jones, telling him we want to kill everyone in there. If you go back in there, we're going to kill you. But actually, secretly, we're in league with John Taylor. <laughs> And Willard Richards, we want to kill everyone in there, but not them. But we're not telling you that. But you better get out of here. We're going to kill you. I don't think they say it like that in the movie. Yeah, it seemed like they left that part out. You know what? Cutting room floor. <laughs> Cutting room floor. Oh, oh every gosh. part of this the we thought about, film except editor. for the part that we didn't think about it. Um, so, for uh, sorry, uh, uh, Dan Jones goes on. With such threats did the sergeant, in the presence of his men, declaim against the prisoners, and one of them leveled and cocked his rifle at me, swearing with an awful imprecation how he would, quote, would love to bore a hole through old Joe, quote. 
Yeah, the mob had no intention of shooting at Is him. that a 19th century term for hanging someone? Yeah, um, no. Uh, bore a hole through while you're pointing a rifle at someone is generally taken to mean I'm going to shoot a hole through you. Hmm. I wonder if the musket had a bayonet on it. Well, it's, well, they would have hung him from the bayonet even if it did. I understand. Right. So, look, this is not me. It's their N- source. N- they are the ones who said this source proves that the intent of the mob was only to hang Joseph. Except for the part of the people saying, I'm going to kill Dan Jones. And also, now look, like all, not almost all, like a lot of antagonistic, uh, you know, anti-Mormon stuff, there is a kernel of truth to this. Later on, after the governor leaves, when the governor says, all right, I'm taking my troops with me and I'm going to, um, I'm going to Nauvoo, the, the troops that were from McDonough, they, they had, had said, oh, if you leave, we're going to, we're going to take care of this. Da, 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 da. Uh, we're going to tear that prison down and have those two men's lives before sundown. Right. So they're, they're saying stuff like that when the governor, uh, you know, so look, Stephen Markham, um, and, 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 and Dan Jones, they go to the governor and they're like, governor, you can hear them saying they're going, they just said, as soon as you leave, we're going to take, and the response of the governor was essentially, uh, this is what anyway, Dan Jones says, you are unnecessarily alarmed for your friends and safety, sir. The people are not that cruel. Dan Jones went on irritated by such a remark. I urged the necessity of placing better men than professed assassins to guard them that they were American citizens surrendered and pledged honor, that they were also master masons, and as such, I demanded the protection of their lives. Again, this is where the connection between Joseph Smith's masonry and, and the uh, assassination actually comes from, from this Dan uh, Jones. Um, I, well, Joseph was a mason, but when people... That'll make, be a separate podcast. Yeah, that's that's part 11 <laughs> of the 12-part <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, when, the, when that appeal failed to reach his adamantine heart, so long before Wolverine was adamantine, so was uh, Governor Ford, uh, whose face appeared to be pale with fright or horror, I remarked that I had then but one request to make, that if he left their lives in the hands of those men to be sacrificed, what is that, sir? He asked in a hurried tone. Dan Jones. It is that the Almighty will preserve my life to a proper time and place to testify that you have been timely warned of their danger. All of this produced no visible effect other than to turn him around and stroll to the other end of the room. I returned to the prison and sought to enter, but they would not let in, would not be let in by the guard. I returned to the hotel when His Excellency was standing in front of the McDonough troops, so the same ones who said, we're going to tear this place. The whole reason they'd complain. In front of the McDonough troops in line, ready to escort him to Nauvoo. The disbanded mob... So the governor, if you remember from our, our modern projects, he, he dismisses nearly all of the troops that he brought. He takes a company with him to Nauvoo, dismisses most of them. And so that's why Dan Jones is saying the disbanded mob retiring to their rear at the time shouted loud in his hearing that they were only going a short distance out of town and would return and hang old Joe and Hiram as soon as the governor be gone out of the way. I beg Calder's attention. So he goes on to say they tried to get um, uh, the... The, the governor to respond. Of course, the governor doesn't. Um, and uh, so they also say that that they were going to hang him. So that there is there is something to that. But the problem is, is that he leaves out the first part. So so why is P 
people shouting as they're running to the back of the line. And we're going to hang that Joe Smith. Why is that better evidence than someone pointing a gun at Dan Jones and saying, I'm going to shoot you and I'm going to bore a hole through Joseph and Hiram Smith. Why exactly would the someone running away in the distance yelling, we're going to, we're going to, why would that, why would that be better evidence than the actual interaction he had with the actual guards, which is actually what Dan Jones was told to do to go find out from the guards why people were trying to get in there. And the response from the guards is I want to shoot Joseph Smith. And this one's, this one's a tough one, right? Because this, this isn't the um, minor Deming. We didn't know this existed potentially. This is, this is your actual source for the thing that you're saying, which is that they never intended. What's obviously clear is the mob only intended to hang Joseph. Okay. So you're taking this, source as the proof that that's what the mob intended. Now, did you take any statements from uh, members of the mob? Did you get any letters, documents, anything from them or that what they intended? Because uh, what apparently happened is they all had guns and they shot. So it's a pretty hard thing to argue. I mean, it's kind of like the person who's arrested after shooting at several people saying, I never meant to hit anybody. Well, that's great, but you had a gun and you shot at them. And so that's attempted murder, but I did, but I didn't do a good job. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, so this is, this is part of the point. So again, back to the question, either you don't know what the document actually says, which means you shouldn't be making a documentary using that source or which is far, far, far more likely because you read through the document to make your documentary. You deliberately didn't tell your viewers that part of the guard said they were going to shoot Joseph Smith. Now, why didn't you tell them that? Because look, it's already an academic question of why you're privileging people running away into the woods saying, we're going to hang Joseph over someone standing there saying, we're going to shoot Joseph. That's already very questionable from an academic standpoint. You making the argument, oh yeah, oh yeah, all they really want to do is hang him. Okay. But worse, back to the what I said last time, you can't make anything up and you can't leave anything out. If the point is to give the truth to the people that are listening, why don't you tell them that both things were said? If what you have to say is so impressive, then tell people. And it will clearly convince them. But like most people who are trying to do propaganda rather than actual academic work, the point isn't to present people with the facts. The point is to convince people of something that you want them to believe. And when you're doing that, you don't tell everybody everything. So we just have a couple more, um, just two more. And by that he means episodes of this topic <laughs> yeah, that this he's going to. Topic. Yeah, we only have eight more. No, so so one, one this this next one is is relatively short, and it's that at the trial, um, or or as is mentioned at the beginning of the of the movie, that there are injured members of the mob, right, and mm-hmm. that uh, that there there was nine total people. Some fled. Some were injured. 
And then the question then is, if the way that they went about it, where all of the all of the guns being, well, there were a couple of gunshots, but all of the major activity happened inside of the of the room, right? Um, how did all of these mob people get injured? Because he talked about people shooting from outside right. so and inside. I, now, and, my guess is, now I don't know this, so this is just me prognosticating, but I assume- It stands to reason. It stands to reason, you know, and I've spent a lot of time on this. <laughs> um, it, I, I assume that in their second part of this, you know, faux documentary, one of the arguments will be that the people who were supposedly wounded- in by Joseph shooting them were actually part of the conspiracy. And that's why they don't show up for the trial. Like they're, well, they don't show up for the trial. They're indicted, but they're not able to actually bring them to trial because they, they flee the state. Well, so, but so that's possible that they will do that. That's what my guess is. So that's possible. But the problem is, is that they don't say that they claimed or that whatever they said, they're wounded. So now how are they, they wounded? They, they said that they were wounded. I, I see. I think that, that that was just inartful. My guess is they're going to say that they weren't actually. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, my guess Bated is they're breath. going to say. Now, and now, what's the problem with that? Because, again, why why does it matter? I mean, why do I care whether or not a mobber is wounded? I mean, frankly, I don't care. I, I want, you know, if, I, I wish they were all. Every, everyone who's trying to murder Joseph, I want him wounded, right? <laughs> um, why does it matter? Well, because their argument is Joseph Smith didn't actually shoot any of the mob members. And why do they have to say that? Because only three of Joseph's barrels fired and those three barrels all went into John Taylor. Now, one of the funny aspects about that is here's another uh, aspect of this that's, that's ridiculous. Like we talked about in the earlier one, the only reason why you know that only three of the barrels fired is because both Willard Richards and John Taylor said so. That's a really weird thing to say. Yeah. These are the two people who performed the murder, but they're also the ones who told us how many times Joseph shot. So we better make sure we include that as part of our evidence of how things happen. But that's what my guess is. My guess is because all the traditional narratives are that Joseph stuck his gun out the door and shot and wounded some of the members. Now, the fact that people were wounded is not just reported by John Taylor and Willard Richards. It's actually used as evidence by the anti-Mormon newspapers in the area that, in fact, this wasn't a murder. This was a jailbreak attempt by the Mormons inside and the Mormons outside. The fact that Joseph is shooting members of the mob is used by anti-Mormons to say this wasn't murder. This was someone who was shot in an attempt to escape. So it's not just John Taylor who says Joseph shot out the door and wounded people. My, like I said, my guess is they're going to say, how come the people who were wounded didn't show up to the trial? How, why, why weren't they there? I know, because they weren't actually wounded. Brigham Young paid him. Told him to get out of town. I mean, I, I don't know what they'll say, but that's my guess. Is like something I, I like literally that. can't. Wait. But but the funny part about that is, like I said, is you need to explain these wounded people. John Taylor and Willard Richards are saying Joseph shot them. The anti Mormons who are there are saying Joseph shot them. And so, what is your plan to say that they were never shot at all? And the evidence you have is that doesn't work for my theory that I have, <laughs> which. You know, it's, it's the strongest it's the, of evidence. The, the strongest of evidence you can have is, well, that wouldn't work for my theory. Okay. And maybe it's because the theory is not a good theory. 
Now the last the last part. This is this is the part actually that uh, was for for you. It, you got pretty upset several times as we were watching this. I think maybe we need to stop doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but as as we were watching as we were watching the 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 movie, you got fairly upset a couple of times. And one of the main reasons that you cited, at least to me, that you were so upset about it is the pain of. John Taylor and Willard Richards at the murder of Joseph Smith. And that was something that, that we talked about quite, quite a bit. And especially, I mean, probably the part that is the most. So if you, if you've studied this and I mean by that, not just driven to Carthage a few times. um, One of the things that actually comes across when you read John Taylor's sermons and his writings about the martyrdom and when you read what he has to say in the Council of Fifty Minutes, with you know the, those documents, which uh, apparently our film uh, makers don't know exist because they didn't use any of them yet, maybe they will. Uh, but Joseph is in those before his martyrdom, and for some reason we're not you know using those as a source. But um, one of the things that comes across is not only does does John Taylor have this desperate you know just love for Joseph, he actually has an even closer connection with Hiram that. John Taylor will in both of his accounts that he gives in his sermon that he gives where he commemorates the martyrdom in 1854 and in the published account that he writes in both of them, he stops to make a special mention of what an amazing man Hiram was in a way that actually I would guess makes some members of the church feel somewhat uncomfortable because while he lauds Joseph, he actually takes an even further step saying Hiram was so great. And I think because John Taylor and Hiram Smith were such good friends. And so uh, let me read part of that. I know we've done this before, but hey, this is kind of a refresher course. Let me read part of what John Taylor says so that you can understand what I'm what I'm talking about, the reason why it's it's so painful to listen to. But let me actually start with the earliest source we have on this and that isn't the published two minutes in jail uh willard richards account of this it's from willard richards journal and in fact much of what willard richards says in the two minutes in jail article which is the published article in the times and seasons much of it he obviously is taking from his journal where he initially writes down in his journal what happened and he gives a timestamp for everything that's happening this happened at this time this happened at this time this happened at this time but to give you an idea of what that earliest document says, and, and I, I found it very I found it very odd actually that in this entire account that was given in this in this film, that we didn't ever go back to the why why aren't we going back to the earliest source on this? So what is the value of a journal entry versus something that's written we at the time talked versus about something this, written that, 50 years later? Yeah, that, that a reminiscent account is affected by a lot of things. In you know, in their case, they're claiming that those accounts would be affected by the fact that they murdered Joseph Smith. But in normal people's lives, it, it what it means is that if if I go to church on Sunday and the speaker says something that makes me really mad, and I write in my journal, you know, brother 
you know, little spoke again today. I don't have a brother little in my ward. Don't worry. I'm not calling him out, but if, but you know, who you are brother. Little. Now, uh, anyway, uh, uh, just kidding. But the, the, um, you know, brother little today spoke in my ward today and I was really upset about what he had to say about X. And I write that in my journal the same day, or maybe even while I'm there, maybe I'm writing it. Maybe I brought my journal to church cause I'm not paying attention, whatever that captures what I'm feeling in that exact moment. Now, that can sometimes be a negative thing in the sense that what if I don't ever talk about Brother Little again? I stop keeping my journal and someone finds my journal, you know, 200 years from now and they're really bored. They listen to multiple parts of this podcast and so they might as well read this. And the impression they would get is, boy, that Dirkmont guy, he's got a real problem with this little. What they don't know is literally the next day, I met the guy, had a conversation with him. We became the best of friends for the next 40 years. You don't know that because that's not what's written down. So you also have to be careful of the fact that journals give us a snapshot into what someone is thinking in the moment at the time. They don't tell us what someone is thinking for the next 40 years of their life. But often that's how people use them, right? So they can be used inappropriately too. Reminiscent accounts are accounts that people make after the fact. And the further away you get from the event, the more likelihood there is that memories might fail, that you're now interpreting things on the basis of what actually happened as opposed to what you were thinking at the time. So let's say, you know, I decide I'm going to write a life history and I remember, what do I remember about my, oh, you know what? I remember that guy made me so mad in his talk he gave. I'm writing it 20 years later. You know, you know what? One time I was in church and a guy, I don't quite remember his name, Brother Lichtenstein. I can't remember. He said, and so I'm going to get some of the, some of the facts I'm just going to get wrong because no one can remember things like that. But I also might color what I'm remembering on the basis of the thousands of other talks that I've heard, right? They might, they might color what it is that I'm thinking. So historians, look, it's not like we throw out reminiscent accounts. But we want to be cautious with them. Just because someone says, you know what, 50 years ago, I had a conversation with Joseph Smith, and they give you all kinds of details, doesn't, it, you wouldn't then say, Joseph Smith obviously said, you would say, according to one account made many years later, this person said that Joseph said this. What about published versus private records? Well, so there is a big difference if I'm publishing something in my time period, then I know everyone's going to see it. If I publish a letter to the editor, the entire point is that other people are going to read the letter to the editor. That's not the same thing with the texts I'm sending to Richard. I have no intention of publishing those. Or maybe I do, maybe later in life. I decide if I run for text. political office. If Richard runs for political office, we will certainly make sure. But, you know, what does that mean? It means that documents that you don't intend to be public have a greater likelihood of actually presenting what someone thinks. I mean, there's a reason why there are hot mic moments, right? Because what does that mean? It means someone says what they really are thinking when other people can hear when they don't actually think they can hear. And it happens all the time, right? Where someone thinks that they're on, I mean, it happens a lot in the Zoom age, right? Where someone thinks they're muted, like, boy, this is the worst teaching we've ever had. And someone's like, uh... Brother Johnson, you're, you're unmuted. 
You know, I mean, right. Which maybe it was the worst teaching, but I'm guessing he didn't want that to go out as 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 live. Um, at any rate, the um, the point is that that when you reflect back on an event, there's all kinds of things that can affect it. Your memory, the time, the other circumstances that happen, and if you're wanting to present something publicly then there's all kinds of things that can affect it as well. I mean, if, uh, one way that that is really easy for people to understand this is if you served a mission, think about the letters or now maybe emails or even the phone calls that you sent to your mom or your dad and what you actually said in those. Now, I'm guessing you weren't lying to your parents. You weren't saying like, oh, you know, baptized 100 today, you know, right? But you probably figured out very quickly that your parents were not in a position to fully understand what was going on on your mission. And that if you said to your mom, hey, I kind of had a headache today, she translated that into you had a severe concussion riding your bike and are losing consciousness at all times, right? You, you learned, well, I can share a certain level of information with them, but they won't understand. So, so who you're writing to also makes a difference in what you say. If I'm the secretary of state and I'm writing an internal email to the assistant secretary of state, well, what I say is going to be a lot different than what my response is when I'm asked by Fox News why I did something, right? The, the, the audience matters, the public nature of it matters. All those things have to be factored in when it comes to sources. At any rate, this is Willard Richard's journal because it's his journal. It's going to be kind of choppy and broken up, um, but um, you, you can see these. You have images. I'm going to read the part where the martyrdom takes place so you can see what he wrote at the time. Um, uh, they talk about they'd, they'd gotten a bottle of wine uh, and they'd, they'd, they'd just shared some with the guards. Um, and uh, the guard who had just uh, tasted um, uh, the, the, the wine that they had, the guard who turned to go out when at the stairs top, someone below called him two or three times. So, so he hears someone yelling his name, the guard does. He went down a little rustling at the door, the cry surrender and discharge of three or four arms followed instantly. So this is again, Willard Richards journal. It's very choppy what's going on here. And, and so he's explaining that they, they just shared some wine with the guard. The guard gets to the top of the stairs. Someone yells his name. He turns to go down because they were yelling it multiple times. So, you know, Bill, 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 or I mean, maybe Frank, Frank, Frank. I, I, I doubt they were sharing the wine with Frank. Maybe that's why he was so mad, but, um, and the cry surrender and a dis so three or four shots are full, uh, fired almost instantly after that cry surrender. Um, back to the, the record. Doctor glanced an eye by the curtain, saw 100 armed men around the door. So this is him, I guess, seeing out the window that he sees a hundred armed men coming up, uh, coming up towards there. Um, and the hundred actually is written in later. So it's actually left blank there. So maybe he, he wasn't sure how many and then wrote that in later at any rate. Joseph Hiram and Taylor, their coats were off. So Joseph Hiram and Taylor's coats were off. Um, Joseph sprang to his coat for his six shooter. Hiram for his single barrel. Taylor 
for his, and he originally writes club actually, which kind of gives you an idea of, 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 of how they're, they're using this, uh, this weapon Taylor, uh, for his club scratches it out. Cane doctor for Taylor's cane all sprang against the door. The balls whistled up the stairway and in an instant, one came through the door so they can hear the shooting. And then a shot comes through the door. Joseph Taylor and Richards sprang to the left. Hiram back in front of the door and stopped, uh, sorry, and snapped his pistol. So Hiram then shot his pistol, you know, uh, essentially when a ball struck him in the left side of his nose, fell back on the floor saying, I am a dead man. Joseph discharged his six shooter in the entry, reaching around the door, uh, the door, um, continued to discharge continued discharges came in the room six shooter misfired two or three times taylor sprang to leap from the east window was shot in the window and uh, that's it that he stops it right there he's so so uh he then goes on to say what happens on on june 28th but that's the end of what he has recorded in his journal of Taylor getting shot. He actually doesn't finish that explanation off of what happens to Joseph. At least not there in his journal. And then you get that from that. So it is odd that we didn't use the earliest account, but you can kind of get the idea that it does seem very similar to what they are going to later say. Um, but now let's talk a little bit about what say John Taylor said when he, when I said his, he has this empathy for Hiram and Joseph. I mean, this is, from his published account, um, where, uh, after John Taylor's wounded, after Joseph goes out of the window, uh, one of the things that, you know, John Taylor is, is, is drug into that, that small cell and Richard's response to John Taylor is, is this is, I'm going to quote now from John Taylor's account. Brother Richards was very much troubled and exclaimed, Oh, brother Taylor, is it possible that they have killed both brother Hiram and Joseph? It cannot surely be. And yet I saw them shoot him and elevating his hands two or three times. He said, Oh Lord, my God, spare thy servants. He then said, brother Taylor, this is a terrible event. And he dragged me further into the cell saying, I am sorry. I cannot do better for you. And taking an old filthy mattress, he covered me with it and said, this may hide you and you may yet live to tell the tale, but I expect that they will kill me in a few moments. While lying in this position, I suffered the most excruciating pain. Soon afterwards, Dr. Richards came to me, informing me the mob had precipitously fled, and at the same time confirming my worst fears, that Joseph was assuredly dead. I felt a dull, lonely, sickening sensation at the news when I reflected that our noble chieftain, the prophet of the living God, had fallen and that I had seen his brother in the cold embrace of death. It seemed as though there was an open void or vacuum in the great field of human ex existence to me, a dark and a gloomy chasm in the kingdom, and that we were left alone. Oh, how lonely was that feeling, how cold and barren and desolate. In the midst of difficulties, Joseph was always the first in motion. In critical position, his counsel was always sought. As our prophet, he approached our God and obtained for us his will, but now our prophet 
our counselor, our general, our leader was gone. And amid the fiery ordeal that we then had to pass through, we were left with a, alone without his aid. And as our future guide for things spiritual or temporal, temporal, and for all things pertaining to this world or the next, he had spoken for the last time on earth. These reflections and a thousand others flashed upon my mind. I thought, why must the good perish and the virtuous be destroyed? Why must God's nobility, the very salt of the earth, the most exalted of the human family, the most perfect type of all excellence, fall victim to the cruel and fiendish hate of incarnate devils? Soon afterwards, I was taken to the head of the stairs and laid there, where I had a full view of our beloved and now murdered brother Hiram. There he lay as I had left him. He had not moved a limb. He lay placid and calm, a monument of greatness even in his death. But its noble spirit had left his tenement and was gone to dwell in regions more congenial to his exalted nature. Poor Hiram. He was a great and a good man. And my soul was cemented to his. If there ever was an exemplary, honest, virtuous man, an embodiment of all that is noble in the human family, Hiram Smith was its representative. You can kind of feel, even in just the reading of that, what John Taylor had as a love for both uh, Joseph and, and Hiram Smith. But as another example, on the anniversary of the martyrdom in 1854, he's speaking in a, in a sermon where both Brigham and John Taylor are lamenting. Now, what's interesting is actually John Taylor got so upset and so impassioned whenever he talked about the murders of Joseph and Hiram that there's actually an instance of Brigham Young saying you know, on one of their, one of the anniversaries saying, I don't really want John Taylor to speak because he's just going to rile us all up. He's just going to, you know, he's just, he's, He's going to bring about these feelings that that will upset us because John Taylor was bitter and angry. Now, he did have a bullet in the back of his knee for the rest of his life from what happened in Carthage. And so the fact that he was there when his friends were murdered is something that drives his disaffection with the United States. That's what drives his feeling that the church needs to get out. Um because he believes his friends were murdered and no one did anything about it. Far from the conspiracy of John Taylor made sure no one would testify. John Taylor is disgusted with the fact that people can murder prophets of the living God and no one cares. Um, the, the reality is, is something that you feel. So again, this is from an, uh, the transcript of a of an unpublished sermon. So it's not going to be there's going to be some some, you know, editing uh, issues with that. But uh, in it, John Taylor says, I'm called upon to address this congregation a little this afternoon. I do so with pleasure. Although at the same time, the things we've heard this morning, and the reflections that then revolve through my mind in relation to these matters produce rather painful feelings. But the things referred to by President Young this morning seemed as if it were to be fresh before my mind. Things of late and old circumstances, things of other would seem as it were to obliterate unless our minds were refreshed by them. There's something very pleasing about these matters, pleasing to me and my brethren. It's pleasing to know that we are the disciples of as good a man as Joseph Smith. He was a man that lived in the fear of God and taught his fear to us. 
who is faithful all his life long until his death. It is pleasing to reflect upon our association with a man of this kind and also with Brother Hiram. It is to me. I am happy to be associated with the church and kingdom of God. I feel thankful to my Heavenly Father that I live in this day and age of the world when the light of truth and the everlasting gospel is shown forth. I consider it one of the greatest blessings and privileges that can be proffered upon me as an individual, next to the Spirit of God so brooding upon my mind, as to cause me to yield obedience to the gospel and to participate in blessings associated therewith. I was blessed to be associated with the prophet Joseph Smith. As President Young said, he knew him, so did I. I've been with him under all kinds of circumstances. When the thick clouds of darkness gathered around and earthquakes seemed to bellow and threaten destruction, when the forces of the earth were rallied against him, and also in times of prosperity. I've heard him, as many of you have heard him, speak in public to advance the principles of eternal truth and to plead with the people to observe the laws of God and to keep his commandments that they might be prepared for a celestial inheritance. But I've also been with Joseph in private counsel. So I've had the opportunity of becoming acquainted with his feelings, his ideas, with his views, and with his morality, with his truthfulness, with his integrity. And I know that he was a good man that he was an honest man, that he was a man of integrity, that he was a prophet of the Lord, and that he lived in that capacity, and that he died in that capacity, and that he maintained his integrity to the end. I was not only with Joseph living, but I was with him dying, and this is my testimony concerning Joseph Smith. I know before God and holy angels, I do not think it, I know it. I know that he was a servant of God and a prophet of the Lord, and that he lived and died in the faith, and I not only know it by my natural sight, but by the revelations of God. And I know by the same way that he yet lives because I have seen him and I know that he lives. And therefore I rejoice in the testimony I can bear concerning him. I know that he will live and I know that he is a friend of this people and watching over their interests. I know that he's a friend of President Young and watches over him and is most interested in the welfare and happiness and exaltation of the saints of the Most High. And having a knowledge of these things sustains my mind and comforts my heart, and strengthens me in the faith of the new and everlasting covenant, and in the principles of truth that we continue to hear. I rejoice myself exceedingly to be associated with brethren such as I am with at the present time, men who fear God and keep his commandments, men whose first desire it is to keep the law of God, to roll forth his purposes to the benefit of the human family, in order that they may be prepared by and by to enter into more extensive field and participate in the blessings in wait for them. I esteem it as one of the greatest blessings conferred upon me to anticipate in this priesthood that is the government of God in the heavens and upon the earth, the rules and regulates and controls all the affairs of the eternal worlds. And when the will of God shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, that it will rule and control and regulate all the forces of this earth. I rejoice then to participate in the blessings of this gospel and priesthood And I look upon everything else as short-lived and temporal. Whether it is riches or poverty, ease or pain, whether it is prosperity or adversity, no matter the circumstance may be in which I or in which you may be placed, it is of very little importance to us if those circumstances we are placed in have a tendency to lead us nearer to God 
and to make us more susceptible to his laws and to make us obedient to his command that we may fulfill our destiny on the earth and be prepared to join with Joseph and Hiram and with those that have lived in the faith and died in the faith of the Son of God. For Hiram was a good man and a servant of the living God, a man of integrity and truthfulness, and I saw him fall when he fell in prison. And I heard the last words he spoke. And I know that the desire of Joseph and Hiram was to promote peace, whatever may have been the feelings of those that were around. Their private and public feelings was to promote the happiness and well-being of the human family. The worst feeling I ever saw manifested by either of them was to procure the happiness and well-being of the human family as God should give them the ability to do it. These were their private and public feelings. The feelings they manifested before public congregations before the world and in private council. And under all circumstances, and although there are thousands of falsehoods in circulation concerning them, and although many of those falsehoods are believed by the people yet, this was the bona fide feeling of these servants of God while they lived upon the earth. And I know it. Did ever anybody hear them teach unrighteous principles? No. Did anyone ever see them practice unrighteous conduct? No. As President Young said, they were men. And they were perhaps the best men that lived. They might have had some little weaknesses and foibles like other men. But if they'd been better, they would not have seen been fit to associate with this people. They were men of God and lived and died in the faith of that gospel they preached. And they did it sincerely with honest hearts before God and men. And therefore, I feel pleasure in testifying of these things. I've borne that same testimony. I've done it here and in different nations and before large congregations. And I know some people don't like, especially abroad, to say it. But these have been my feelings here, and they will be to the day of my death and through eternity. John Taylor spends the remainder of his life desperately trying to convince everyone he meets that Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith were prophets of God. John Taylor has a life, a lived experience of caring about Joseph and what Joseph taught more than any detractor could ever hope to think in their hundreds of trips to Carthage. The evidence of John Taylor's life in his private life and his public life was that he loved Hiram Smith, that he loved Joseph Smith. And unlike the makers of this film or other detractors actually did suffer, actually did get shot multiple times, actually did walk with a limp because he suffered in that defense of Joseph Smith, was persecuted walked across the, 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 the wastelands of America to settle out beside the Salt Lake. And then even with that, because he refused to abandon the teachings that Joseph Smith had given them, at least until God said otherwise, is going to live the last years of his life and die in hiding. Why? Because he knew Joseph Smith had taught that principle. So people who want to, de- to defame the prophet John Taylor They have every source that exists against them by both his life and his words, by his experiences and his actions. And frankly, it makes me sick that men who sacrifice as much as they did 
John Taylor and Willard Richards would be defamed in this insulting, paltry, and frankly, idiotic manner in, in, a, in a desperate attempt to try to make their own apostasy seem somehow justified. The reality is those men were prophets and apostles of God, and they bore greater testimony to Joseph Smith and the truth than, than anyone else of their time. So we're going to leave this topic. Hopefully it was of some interest to people. Um, but I hopefully what you can take away from this is don't allow your faith to be casually swayed by the people that are practicing a chicanery of their own as they claim some kind of inside knowledge, as they claim some kind of inside expertise, as they seek to get you to doubt what the Holy Spirit of God tells you in your heart, and that is, this church is true. That feeling is is better than however many hours someone claims they spent working on a contrary argument. Only the Holy Spirit of God can tell you that this church is true. The Holy Spirit of God hopefully has told you that. I know it's told me that, and, and that's a testimony that I share with all of you. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.